0: Welcome to the Tax Girl podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips or for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. So you guys know that I'm a history nerd. I'm also a museum geek. And my favorite museum ever is the Mob Museum, located in Las Vegas, Nevada. The museum opened on Valentine's Day, February 14, 2012. The opening coincided with the anniversary of the 1929 St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago, where several members of Bug Moran's gang were lined up against the brick wall of a warehouse, shot and killed, allegedly, by Al Capone's gang. Despite his lifestyle, Capone never filed an income tax return, claiming that he had no taxable income. Under the tax code, income is reportable even if the source is illegal activities. That's still true today. Using forensic accounting, Special Agent Frank Wilson and IRS T-Men, as they were called, put together a case against Capone for failing to report millions. On June 5, 1931, Capone was indicted on 22 counts of federal income tax evasion. Also charged were a number of other mobsters, including Capone's brother, Ralph Bottles Capone, Jake Greasy Thumb Guzik, and Frank Nitti. Capone was found guilty and sentenced to prison for a then-unheard-of 11 years. Today, the Mob Museum features artifacts, multimedia displays, and interactive exhibits that offer an insider's look into many of organized crime's biggest names, including not only Capone, but Charlie Lucky Luciano, Bugsy Siegel, John Gotti, Whitey Bulger, and Virginia Hill. In addition to organized crime, the museum also highlights the early days of the Internal Revenue Service criminal investigation. Tax played an important role in the cases the feds were building against Capone and others. You can't find a lot of museums that have that kind of focus, which is one of the reasons that I find it so fascinating. I've wondered about the history of the museum, what inspired it, and I thought that you guys might too. So today's guest is going to help us sort all of this out. Today's guest is Jeff Schumacher, who is the vice president of exhibits and programs at the museum. Jeff is responsible for exhibits, artifacts, and public programs. He earned his bachelor's degree in journalism from the University of Nevada and his master's degree in history from Arizona State University. He's also a journalist with a 25-year journalism career at the Las Vegas Sun, where he was a reporter, editorial writer, and city editor. He was also the editor of Las Vegas City Life and founded the Las Vegas Mercury. He served as director of community publications for the Las Vegas Review-Journal for 10 years and wrote a weekly public affairs column for the Review-Journal. He's the author of two books, Sun, Sin, and Suburbia, A History of Modern Las Vegas, and Howard Hughes, Power, Paranoia, and Palace Intrigue. Jeff, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So, Obviously, with your background, you're, you're a Vegas guy, but tell us a little bit about how the museum got started and why it's in Vegas and not, say, D.C. or Chicago.
1: That's a good question, because the reason it's in Las Vegas is because of the building in which we're located. That would be the primary reason. Okay. This was the original federal courthouse and post office for Las Vegas. And, uh, it's a historic building in downtown Las Vegas. It was opened in 1933, which by Las Vegas standards is very old. If mm-hmm. you're <laughs> in other parts of the country, you know, you can have buildings as, you know, from the 17th century, but in Las Vegas, 1933 is pretty early. Right. This was the main federal courthouse and post office up until the latter part of the 1900s. At which point the federal government decided that it didn't need this building anymore. Las Vegas had grown like a weed and they had built new buildings for federal courts. And so feds wanted to get rid of the building. Right. At the same time, the city of Las Vegas, under the leadership of Mayor Oscar Goodman, uh was interested in redeveloping and improving the downtown area of Las Vegas, like many cities they're doing, you know, trying to spruce up their downtown. Mm -hmm. And they saw the opportunity to acquire this building from the feds. So the feds said, "We will give it to you for one dollar, which is a great deal." It's
0: a great deal. It's a beautiful building, so (laughs) it's a wonderful deal.
1: But there were two conditions attached to that. The first condition was that you it had to be historically preserved. In other words, you couldn't just rip out all the walls and, and turn it into you know something else. Right. It needed to be historically preserved. And the second thing is it needed to be used for some kind of a cultural use. So it couldn't become like a call center for Amazon or something. It it had to be a museum or a a performing arts center or something like that. Right. So Mayor Goodman had the idea that this ought to be a museum and that it ought to be a museum focused on the history of organized crime. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why would Oscar Goodman think about that? Well. In his life, before he was the mayor of Las Vegas, he was a defense attorney for the mob, one of the most famous in the country. Right. And his his whole career was resolved, revolved around defending mobsters. So he saw the history of organized crime as a, as a very interesting part of American history and the shadow history of the country. And so, uh, at, at first there were some skeptics, but eventually, uh, the idea Carried the day, and funding was secured from the federal government, from the state, from the local municipality, and uh, they put together about forty-two million dollars to completely renovate the building, to build the and design and build the exhibits, and to uh, and all the technology that went with it. So, like you, as you noted, on February fourteenth, two thousand twelve, the building the museum opened. And uh, we've been, we've been <laughs> until the pandemic, we were, we were growing like crazy uh, for, you know, six straight years, eight straight years.
0: Right. Do you think that some of the skepticism initially had to do with the fact that Goodman was a defense attorney? Do you think people thought that it might somehow glamorize yes. organized crime? I mean, I, was that the concern?
1: Absolutely. And, and uh, uh, that was the concern that two, there were two concerns locally. One was, uh, came from the Italian American community, which said, A, we don't want you to stereotype Italian Americans in this, right. in this, in this museum. And second of all, that uh, they didn't want to glorify organized crime in any way. It wasn't just Italian Americans. Many people in the town were concerned about this. Right. So very cleverly, Goodman put together a committee, uh, that originally, that became our board that consisted of not only himself, but many people from the law enforcement community. And and so what you saw was a commitment to making this a balanced story. And one of our early marketing campaigns was, you know, both sides of the story, or two sides of the story. So, you know, we really are committed to, we'll tell you the history of organized crime, but we're also going to tell you how law enforcement at all the levels has responded to organized crime over that history.
0: And I think that's what's so fascinating, especially on my end, is that, you know, oftentimes you only see one side or the other. And and you get to see, like, one of the things that's sort of fascinating generally, at least to me, about some of these organized criminals is that they did lead these lives that were really interesting because, like, Capone, for example, like within reason people thought that he was a good guy he liked to present himself as I'm a good guy but he was a good guy who did bad things is you know what law enforcement would say so I do think it's really fascinating um that you do show the the glamorous bits but also the the not so great bits
1: well and, and just to, to uh, hammer that point home I mean from our perspective we find the the law enforcement piece of it equally interesting I mean they're just like you have you know, crime dramas that dominate television and the movies where it's usually from the perspective of the detective or the police officer or whomever, you know, on the right side of the law. And there's a reason for that because it's interesting, you know, um, mm-hmm. it, we get a double, you know, we, we offer the guests the double whammy, right? We've got the interesting part about the mob and then we have the interesting part about the law.
0: Right. So how did you go about getting the, the, the pieces for the museum then? Because I knew you did have cooperation from law enforcement and then also some private donations. I know that um, Marty Dolan also donated some things. So how did you go about soliciting pieces that would be in the museum and, and how did you decide what had value?
1: Right. So, you know, uh, putting together the artifacts that we have on display today, you know, this started before the museum opened. And one of the first artifacts that we acquired was the, the bricks from the wall that w- where the Saint Valentine's Day Massacre occurred. You had mentioned that, mm-hmm. and uh, this one of the premier artifacts in our museum is we have more than 300 bricks from that wall against which the Bugs Moran's men were lined up. And these were the actual bricks. Building was torn down in 1967, and those bricks were retrieved and marked. You know they were numbered and lettered so that they could be put back together in the same order. And so we ended up acquiring those a couple of years before the museum opened. That was a real coup. From there, we started working on mob families, collectors, other museums, and then, as you mentioned, law enforcement agencies and law enforcement of retired officers and things like that. And we were able to find lots of interesting objects to help us tell the stories in the museum. We're still That's still a work in progress every single day we're thinking about, you know, what we could add to our collection, what could be made, how we can tell these stories better. Because a lot of collectors, you know, they want to hold on to things. And a lot of families want to hold on to things. And so over time, we're actually going to see the collection at the museum grow and improve. But, you know, we've been in this a little over eight years now. And, um, you know, that's in museum time. That's a short amount of time.
0: Sure. Do you have anything like on your wish list that you're allowed to talk about? Like something that you that you would consider, like, you know, obviously maybe not as big as a brick wall, but uh, that's something that you'd really like to see come to the museum.
1: Well, yeah, in terms of like a, a particular item I know is sitting on someone's shelf somewhere. No, but what I can tell you is there are certain people from the history that we tell, like you mentioned Lucky Luciano, Lucky Luciano. Is someone who, for whom it is very difficult to get artifacts, or at least it has been for us. Anything connected to Lucky Luciano is—we is, have not been able to get.
0: Why and is that? We
1: would—I don't know if there's not much of a family history there, uh, you know, descendants, right, to tap into, or if he destroyed a lot of stuff that he had, or uh, what. But you know, it's just not a lot of things circulating. Mm-hmm. So we would love to have more connected to him on another note you know al capone we're always in search of items related to al capone and we have a couple of very cool items connected to him but there's so much one of the problems with capone is either the items are too expensive mm-hmm. <laughs> you know people collectors have them and they they the value that they place on them is inc- incredibly high of course or they're fakes and we get calls all the time oh this was you know al capone's watch But this was Al Capone's pinky ring, something like that. And many, many, many times we are not able to authenticate these items. And I think there's a lot. How long does it normally take to
0: authenticate something? Does that is that a process? Like if I if I called you tomorrow and said, you know, I have Al Capone's bottle collection from one of his bootleg bars. Like, how do you figure out if I'm telling you the truth? And how long does that take generally?
1: Sometimes it can be very easy to authenticate something because we can look into certain types of items have records that we can trace, like guns, for example. Mm-hmm. Other things can be traced back because there's a, there's a name or an inscription on, like we talk about a bottle. If there was a bottle that said the ship, which was one of the uh, gambling clubs that, that Al Capone had in Chicago. And we could ver- you know, verify that that bottle Came from that era and from that place, uh, then we can do that rather quickly. But unfortunately, there's a lot of situations where someone will say, Well, I have this was uh, Al Capone's tie, but there's really no way to authenticate that. We try, you know, you might see if there was a, a picture of Capone wearing the tie, or there might be some family history that is connected to the tie that we can validate. Mm-hmm. But many times, even if something is legit, we can't take it because we can't verify it. And it's right. sometimes just very hard when you're dealing with people's, you know, personal effects, people's family heirlooms. That in particular is a difficult uh, area to, to validate things. Uh, sure. But we have like a lot of things in the museum aren't tied to an individual. They're just tied to an era. So, for example, the prohibition era, we have been able to, you know, find medicinal alcohol bottles, and we've been able to find prescription, you know, doctor's prescriptions for alcohol and different things like that that are clearly from the era. Awesome.
0: So in terms of those uh, exhibits, I know some of them are standing. So, you know, you, if you go to the museum from year to year, the, the exhibits, there are certain floors, it's going to be roughly the same. But then there's also some that, that change with, you know, I guess, depending on what people are interested in or what's available to you from law enforcement? How do you guys make decisions about what might be a good temporary exhibit?
1: Right. So one of the things that we have, one of the sort of problems we've had in the past is we have not had a true temporary exhibition space, Mm -hmm. which a lot of museums have. Because of the historic nature of the building, it's not like we can just tear down walls or, you know, do an addition or something right so we've had that limitation however recently you know right after we reopened on may 31st after the closure for the pandemic we opened a new exhibit in a new space which is part of our old retail space and it tells the story of the rise of the international drug cartels oh, cool in the 70s and 80s and so it focuses on pablo escobar in colombia and the uh, cartels, cartels in Mexico, and and uh, so it's a it's a missing piece of the story in the museum, and so we felt like this temporary exhibit is a great opportunity for us to fill in that gap. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what we did was, from an artifact standpoint, we got in touch with a, a wide array of retired DEA agents, and we came across four individuals, two connected to Colombia and two connected to Mexico. Who had some just really tremendous mementos from their time going after the cartels, going after Pablo Escobar, etc. And um, and and so we've got and these are most of these items are on loan to us, so we're a long-term loan. Right. Uh, so we'll have that exhibit up for more than a year, we expect, but eventually that will be replaced by something else. We are also uh, have a space on the third floor where we are sort of reinventing that space. To improve it, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a it was a space that I think the original designers never really came to terms with what they wanted to do there, and so it's been maybe a, what we would call a weak spot in the museum. Okay. And uh, we're we're in the process of developing a new exhibit, and what it's going to focus on is the early early organized crime and early law enforcement, you know, before prohibition. And so when you're talking about uh, federal law enforcement at that time, you're, you're probably talking about the Secret Service, for example. Right. And there's a, there's an amazing case that happened in 1909, I believe, where the Secret Service, uh, took down a, a major counterfeiting operation by the early mafia in New York. And so we're going to tell that story. And, so cool. um, we also talk about, uh, Joseph Petrosino, who was a, probably the most famous New York police department officer. In his day, he was one of the few Italian Americans on the force, and he was tasked with going after the Black Hand, you know, the extortion racket that really was the primary form of organized crime in America before Prohibition. And uh, so, and he ultimately was killed in Italy, and uh, and so is a sad story, but a very important figure. So that space now is being dedicated to these early these early law enforcement. Early organized crime.
0: Do you have a particular exhibit or a particular artifact that you would say is your most popular in the museum?
1: I think I would go back to the uh, the wall, the massacre Mm -hmm. wall, as the most popular and probably the you know the the one that people come to see. The second thing that people really come to see is our courtroom. The courtroom uh, is historic in the sense that the Kefauver Committee. That was the uh, Senate investigating committee that was looking into organized crime in the early 1950s. That committee traveled around the country and held hearings in, uh, in a number of cities. And one of those hearings was in Las Vegas and it happened in our building on uh, November 15th, 1950. And so what we've done is we've restored that courtroom to its original grandeur. And uh, that was a big part of the uh, early investment in the museum building was Uh, doing that because there was a a terrible trend in the 60s and 70s, and where these historic buildings were covered up in different ways. Right. You know, people would put up a false ceiling because they thought that was a good idea, or they would cover up brick walls or, you know, with plasterboard or whatever they decided to do at that time. And that courtroom had been divided into two, uh, spaces. It's just such a beautiful space. And yet they decided now we have better use for this. We're just going to put up <laughs> some, put up some walls and, uh, we're going to make some offices in here. So all of that was torn out and, uh, the building and that space is restored and it's just a, it's just a wonderful space to be in. And, you know, we do all kinds of things in that room. Now that courtroom, we, we have our public programs in there, speakers and uh, panel discussions. We also have weddings. We have a lot of weddings in there. We have uh, senior proms. We have, Parties, you know, company parties. It's really a, a fascinating place to do something like that in.
0: It's a beautiful room. So I'm. So now I'm thinking in the back of my head. I'm, my poor girls. So I'm thinking about having them be married there. There you go. <laughs> so I mean, it's a great. It's a great space. So another one of uh, I think one of the things that kind of sets the museum apart from what you would consider a traditional museum, but it's very uh, Vegas, is the underground and. The first time that my husband and I went, I assumed that it was just gonna be kind of like a theme bar. And I know that probably sounds insulting, but I that was my expectation. And I was actually blown away at how much our server knew in terms of history. Is so how how what kind of training do you guys give your staff overall? Are these folks who come in because they love history? Do you have like training or are they, you know, are they museum geeks like me? Like, how do they know what they know? Because again, we asked a couple of questions about uh, some of the drinks and the history. And I was blown away that my server who, you know, was almost half my age, probably knew more than I did. It was, it was very impressive.
1: Well, first of all, I'm very glad to hear that your server uh, was able to do that we do work on that and we do want them to be knowledgeable about the prohibition era and about speakeasy culture and so there is a lot of materials that we make available to them and we do you know we do some training so that is intended good <laughs> it maybe works. not every and you might get a varying level of of knowledge depending on the individual but some of them are really well versed in it now that I was going to mention that the underground is a is more a more recent addition to the museum Uh, For those who maybe attended the museum some years ago, this is in our basement. And originally it was where our offices were. That's where my first office was, where everybody's first office was here. And you would just only go to the basement really to go to the restroom down there. Oh, wow. But then we saw the opportunity that we needed to grow. And as I mentioned, we can't put additions on the building. So we said, well, let's use our basement for something productive. And uh, the, the notion of creating a, a speakeasy, you know, a prohibition era, a speakeasy exhibit that has a working bar in it. Started that came first. And then we, you know, now we have a distillery exhibit that has a working mm-hmm. still. We do we make produce moonshine in the basement of the museum. And you know, this is a, a hugely popular part of our the museum experience today. It helps us to tell that story of the Prohibition era and the mob and how it was involved with not only making moonshine, making alcohol, but then distributing it and selling it and also operating speakeasies. So it, it's a perfect fit.
0: Right. And for folks who haven't been, again, you don't just get your drink brought in any any old glass. Like there's there's a presentation there are some where the the liquor may not be obvious where it is at first. It's um it's really I it's really well done. And I also one of the things I found really fascinating about the layout of the museum is, is it is small compared to a lot of you know, what we think of museums when we think like DC, but the, the way that so many things are tucked away and especially like in the underground where there are, you know, there's costumes and there's information about entertainers, like there's something everywhere you look. And I found that also to be really impressive because when we went um, the second time, we took the kids to the museum and there was something to look at everywhere. And I think that is a really um, good part of education, because when you go as a family, you know, you want everybody to find something that they relate to.
1: And I always, uh, thank you for that. I, I, I always enjoy hearing from people who say, I had to come back a second time because I could not absorb everything the first time.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: And that happens a lot. You know, people will come and they might spend two to three hours in our building and then want to come back again because they didn't, they didn't have a chance to, to do everything and see everything.
0: Yeah, when we came back the second time, the kids did the crime lab. And then my husband and my oldest, because my other two were not old enough, they did the um, the police uh, simulation, which yeah. was really fascinating. It was um, actually timing wise, when we went, it was when a lot of the police violence demonstrations were going on initially. And my we all had very definite opinions about what we thought about that. But my, Mm -hmm. my daughter in particular was struck by while, while there by the split second decision-making we learned that she would not make a good police officer. And (laughs) uh, and that's um, but I do think it's really interesting because I do think it get again, it gives people a different perspective on uh, both, both organized crime and police work. I think it's, it's important for, not only a, museums like yours, but podcasts and, and columns to present lots of information so that people can decide, you know, what they think about something rather than be spoon fed. So I thought that was really fascinating.
1: Yes, thank you. And those are more, you know, the crime lab and the and the firearms training simulator use of force exhibit are, are newer additions as well. They came online at the same time as the Speakeasy and the Distillery. And so these are these are new reasons to come to the museum.
0: So what's next? In the museum. Like I, mean, I know you mentioned that you, obviously you're you're always thinking about uh, how things can change. And it is, it's weird to think that we keep mentioning all of these changes and it's only been eight years, but what kind of is next or, or what do you hope is next?
1: A couple of things that we are, that we have on that we're thinking about, I'll say, is, is expanding our presence outside the building. So Creating a, a, an environment outside the building that when it's not, you know, this time of year, when it's not 110 out, where people can, can congregate and can learn and enjoy themselves. So like an extension of the speakeasy outside, for example, mm-hmm. the speakeasy can get very full at times and it'd be nice to have that option for people to go outside and, and have another connected venue where they could spend some time. So that's one thing we're thinking about. Another is really, like I mentioned on the third floor, is is telling this story just a little bit more cohesively and simplifying in some ways. You know, we've been talking about how much material there is in the museum. One of the rare complaints that we get sometimes, people will say there's too much.
0: Oh, (laughs) well, okay.
1: And it's too much, you know, Mm -hmm. and so we take that to heart because I do think of myself as a a writer, you know, I can I can be a little wordy at times, and and uh, you know, people want to be able to absorb information in a lot of different ways, right? So it's not just text panels on the wall; it can be videos, it can be interactive experiences, and you know, different things. So we're looking at ways to, you know, bring the museum into the next phase of technology, really, and thinking about how we can attract younger people who really love that participatory participatory experience.
0: Right. So in terms of, you mentioned like expanding outside and you literally meant outside. I actually, where I thought you were going with that was to expand beyond Vegas. Are there any plans at any point to either do a more virtual experience or to maybe have other spots? Or is are you guys pretty much committed to just making taking the space that you have right now and, and making the best that, that you can make there?
1: Ever since I arrived here at the museum six and a half years ago, the always on the table has been, there have been two things on the table that we have discussed. One would be some kind of a temporary exhibition that would travel around the country. So we would create a little mini mob museum, if you will, and that this would, this would be housed in for a period of months at different museums and, and other facilities around the country. It's a very common thing that you see at other museums where they will have a, you know, a temporary exhibition, but it's something that actually travels, whether it's, you know, like an Egyptian, uh, you know, those are some of the more famous sure. ones, you know, Egyptian right. artifacts or that kind of thing. So we've talked a lot about that. Uh, and I think it would be a popular uh, traveling exhibition. The other uh, thing we've talked about is having some one or more smaller mob museums in other in other cities. So, you know, whether it's in Chicago or Kansas City or Tampa, Florida or New York, wherever it might be that would make the most sense, this would be almost like a an opportunity to, to become exposed to the mob museum with certainly the hope that eventually you'd come see the real thing, right? Right. But, uh, that we would give people a taste of what we have to offer uh, in these cities where organized crime has been a, a rich part of their history. So I think that's, those are both on the table. I think right now, you know, in the wake of, well, not in the wake, we're right in the middle of this pandemic still. We need to rebuild our audience here in Las Vegas and, and Las Vegas needs to rebuild its, you know, its tourism count. So, you know, we're probably not, we're probably a little ways away from those traveling exhibits or or remote exhibits but definitely on the table
0: and since we know from your bio that you're you're pretty uh seems to be diehard las vegas guy um i'm just kind of curious is there a moment and and obviously since you've written books about the the history not only of nevada but different parts of uh, modern las vegas is there a moment or two that you would consider to be like what you find to be the most interesting, as as it applies to Vegas and in organized crime in general, like is there like a particular like decade or a particular no. person that you find most intriguing?
1: It's a, a very open ended question, but I'll I'll be try to be specific. Uh, I think one of those moments that I've, I've been I'm actually writing an article about it is about the year 1941. And 1941 was definitely a turning point for Las Vegas. And three or four different things happened all at once that really were the the turning point to create the modern Las Vegas we know today. And that was, uh, one of them was the arrival of an, an Army air base here. And, you know, that just brought thousands and thousands of people to this valley mm-hmm. in, in preparation for World War II. Another was uh, a magnesium plant. That was again a, a government-funded war-related development that again brought tens of thousands of people here. And the third thing was the first hotel opened on the Las Vegas Strip. That was the El Rancho Vegas. It was not a mob place at first, but it opened the notion that the Las that that what later became known as the Las Vegas Strip was an actual way to grow the the city's tourism. Mm-hmm. And uh, before that, all the casinos were down on Fremont Street and they were small and kind of congested together. There were no swimming pools. There were no horse stables, you know, any of the things that became really popular at these sprawling resorts on the strip. None of that was available right. until 1941. And the fourth thing that happened that year was the arrival of a number of uh, gangsters and other and, and racketeers from Southern California to Las Vegas to you know kind of go legit in their mind they wanted to come here and run casinos they had been driven out of southern california by a reform mayor butcher bowron who came in and, and he, he and his new police chief started cracking down on illegal gambling there so a lot of those guys came here and they ended up building you know like the el cortez hotel downtown las vegas and a number of other hotels that later came came into being here were the products of that initial immigration of these illegal gamblers. So that was a real turning point for Las Vegas and for the mob too. Uh, another was certainly in the 50s when Las Vegas became the Las Vegas of of legend, right? right. With the neon yeah. signs and and the mob running all the different small, you know, intimate casinos and the entertainment that followed, you know, with Frank Sinatra and everybody else. So the fifties is a never-ending font of great stories.
0: Speaking of stories, since many of us are still uh, kind of confined to our, our small geographic areas because of stay-at-home orders, if for folks who can't yet get to Vegas, do you have any movie recommendations? I know that there are some references on the website, but do you have any movie recommendations for like a good organized crime story that, or a good Vegas story that you think like folks ought to see?
1: You have to start when you're talking about the mob in Las Vegas on screen. You have to start with the movie Casino.
0: I love that movie. Which,
1: By the way, this year is celebrating its thirtieth uh, no, twenty fifth anniversary. Sorry, twenty fifth anniversary. Wow. In wow. November, uh, came out in 1995. That movie is really that rare case where a fic, you know a fictional movie tried very hard to adhere to the facts of what what transpired here, and even the most you know skeptical historians will will acknowledge that casino is comes pretty darn close to telling the accurate story of the mob and law enforcement in las vegas in the 70s and early 80s
0: and the acting is fantastic
1: well the acting is is fantastic the sets you know all of the all the scenes are, are great but it also tells an accurate story about the sort of the last you know sort of the last big gasp of the mob in Las Vegas, you know, with the Stardust Hotel Lefty Rosenthal, Tony Spilatro, and also how law enforcement finally brought them down by discovering the skinning that was happening and mm-hmm. becoming much more aggressive with the black book, including people in our black book, which is the state's list of people excluded from entering casinos. So it's a, it's a great, I think, primer for anyone planning to come to Las Vegas and come to the mob museum.
0: Awesome. So where can people find you? Obviously they can physically find you in in Vegas, but where can people find both you and the museum? Are you on social? Um, if people want to poke around on the website, how do they find the museum?
1: First of all, our our website is quite robust. We have a lot of content on our website and we have you know, written content. But we particularly have video content, and so I encourage you to to find that on our website, which is themobmuseum.org. We also have a YouTube page where we are starting to place a lot of our video content. We, you know, the museum is is readily available on all social media platforms. You know, we have a great Instagram set, you know, uh, Instagram page where we talk about the underground in particular and all of the specialty drinks that we offer there just a, a really nice thing to uh, to follow and then on the on the main mob museum you know Facebook page or Twitter you'll find all of our upcoming programs which are you know we have a constant stream of speakers that are talking about mob history uh, and also contemporary mob organized crime things so we're not hard to find online we're definitely very busy there
0: Awesome. And I'll make sure that I include uh, links to uh, your social and to the website on the show notes. So and thank you so much for taking your time today to talk to us about the museum and the history of the museum and the future of the museum. I think it's, again, it's my favorite museum. And I, I hope more people go check it out. It's really eye opening. So I appreciate your time.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to talk about the museum. That's my favorite thing to do.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. And that will do it for this episode. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Tax Girl, and you can sign up for my free newsletter at taxgirl.com. Thanks for listening because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them doesn't have to be.